chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. As for the man who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not for disputes over opinions. One believes he may eat anything, while the weak man eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who abstains, and let not him who abstains pass judgment on him who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the master is able to make him stand. One man esteems one day as better than another, while another man esteems all days alike. Let everyone be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. He also who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while he who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. None of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For as it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So each of us, shall give account of himself to God. In the Christian journey, we are at all different places, some just starting out on this exciting adventure, and I commend you for all that lies ahead of you. And some are nearing the destination to receive the crown of completion, some are taking detours and losing valuable time. Some are asleep by the side of the road, and others are running with vigor. But the marvel is that in the Christian church, God wants there to be a harmony and an understanding among all the different positions and places that we are in our pilgrimage. This passage, which the Apostle Paul has written under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, was designed to handle a particular problem in one local church. But God preserved this spectacular piece of writing for us so that it could address not only that problem, but the whole matter of how Christians who are at different points in their maturity and in their freedom and understanding how they might live together in peace and love. How wise of God to do more than one thing at a time. The weak in faith who are described here are converts from Judaism. Perhaps they have dabbled in the teaching of the Essenes and they want to be super-Christians in their new life. Perhaps 
Therefore, they have undertaken a vegetarian diet, and they have observed some of the days that came over to them from the old Jewish ceremonial system, the day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the new moons, the day of Pentecost, and so on. And scrupulously, they are observing these dietary matters and these days as having special value and special uh, blessing for them. It is not in sight here, I think, that the Lord's Day is considered. The Lord's Day was in the early church was not a human option, but something that the people of God kept by divine commandment. We're not talking here about that in the observance of days, but these Jewish festival days in the time of transition from the old economy to the new, some Jewish converts held some days fast and scrupulously, and others disregarded them all and counted all days alike. And so differences of opinion arose among them. Now the problem in the church at Rome was different from the one in Colossae or Galatia, where Paul also addresses the question of eating and drinking and its relation to righteousness. In those churches, the people had imbibed the spirit of Gnosticism, that ancient heresy which tried to divide the mind and the soul and the body in such a way that the body was considered evil and it had to be put down and denied. And they somehow thought that by denying the flesh, and abstaining and even flagellating it that they were enhancing and blessing the spirit. They even thought that their rules and regulations about food had something to do with their being saved. This is legalism, a system of works designed to give men a feeling of being right with God. And the apostle Paul stands with all his commissioned vigor against that kind of heresy because it strikes at the core of the gospel and dislodges the central doctrine of justification by faith alone. And he will have nothing to do with it. And he says, if you resort again to circumcision, you have denied Christ because you've added a requirement to the gospel. But here in Romans, that the error is of a different caste, and the apostles speak so tenderly and gently because these friends, though they differ in the matter of diet and days, these are indifferent things, and they are not in danger as regards the central basis of justification by faith alone. That is on solid ground, and they are strong in it. And so he turns with a real apostolic tenderness to treat a problem of how Christians are to relate together at different stages of the maturing process. And if we were to try to draw together the wisdom of these great words of the Holy Spirit, we would say that living under the Lordship of Christ is the key to harmony in the church and the home. Living under the Lordship of Christ is the key to harmony in the church and the home. 
You see, this Christian life is not a matter of eating and drinking. It is a supernatural life, a life activated by and energized by the Holy Spirit. And it must always be recognized as such. How then are we to take hold of this key to harmony, this living under the Lordship of Christ? Well, these 12 verses are so rich to give us practical help. They say to us that there is to be in our hearts a spirit of welcome to each other. Now, that doesn't mean that we welcome each other in order to have discussions or in order to air our differences or in order to convert someone to our point of view or in order to have discriminations about doctrines or to have judgmental and condemning attitudes. We don't welcome them in order to have dispute with them in matters which are indifferent. Now, the weak in faith that Paul speaks of here are those brothers and sisters whose grasp of the great central principles of salvation is not yet strong enough for them to see that it rests solely on their appropriation of Christ by faith. But they think that they will make their hold on Christ somehow more certain by the observance of certain formal duties with regard to diet and to days. They are weak in faith. They think they are stronger. They are weaker because they are trying to supplement the great basis of their faith with external actions. The strong in faith, to which Paul alludes, are those who have so centrally grasped what Christ has done for them that they have been liberated from every human effort to make certain their own salvation in things indifferent. And they walk, therefore, in the liberty of the children of God. And the Apostle Paul in this passage comes down, no doubt, on the side of the strong, the side of the free. And here Christian freedom is forever validated by the great Apostle himself. And we are, therefore, to stand fast in the liberty with which Christ has made us free. Let no one take us into the yoke of bondage, thinking that by things external, added to the Scripture, anyone will make more certain his hold on eternal life. To welcome one another is to do so because God has welcomed the brother and the sister. Even though there is this difference between the strong and the weak, and the strong are right, says the apostle. Nevertheless, since God welcomes each of the groups, you also are to welcome one another. God does not count the error of these people in observing diet and days so grievous or central an error, error that he disqualifies them from the pilgrimage. We read in chapter 15 and in verse 3 of chapter 14, as God has welcomed them, and in 15, as Christ welcomed 
you welcome one another. That means let there be no restriction upon your expression of love, upon the esteem that you have for one another, upon your confidence in each other, but take them as guests into your heart, loving them, nurturing them, guiding them, and being utterly, utterly brotherly and sisterly to them. Welcome one another. Have you truly welcomed each other? Some of us differ from one another. Have you welcomed one another in a true spirit? Or is there invisible barrier which separates us from each other? You see, the welcome is always in a sense that this other person is also a servant of God. As I am a servant, so is he a servant of God. And I have no right to judge another man's servant. He has his own relation to his master, and that is his business. As I am related to him in obedience, so is my brother and my sister. When you begin to see each other as fellow servants of God, every sense of censoriousness or contempt disappears. You honor them because they're obeying their master. You see, every servant has a right to add goals of his own. That is, if a person is working for an employer, let's say he has the desire to arrive 15 minutes early every day. That's going to be a goal. The, the employer doesn't require it. His fellow employees have no right to criticize. But he sets this personal goal. He has no right to ask that of others. But he does it for himself. And so can we do with the Lord. There are Christians who say, I will hold my weight, for example, at precisely this point, so that I may do my best for the Lord. No one has a right to require that of him. He has set a goal between himself and his master, and he has a right to do it, the permission to do it, but he has no permission to levy that on anyone else. A good example of this is the contrast between John the Baptist and our Lord himself. John the Baptist took as his regimen the Nazarite vow. He would not touch wine. He would eat simply. He would live in the wilderness. He would clothe himself with difficult and tough clothing. And he was an ascetic. He, he made certain goals before his Lord, which our Savior never made. He ate and drank with men. And he was even called at times a glutton. I'm sure erroneously, but that name was given to him. But here's the contrast. Both servants of God and both welcoming one another and reinforcing one another and yet each making their particular servanthood a matter of personal love and decision. In this spirit, we're to welcome each other regardless of these differences that might seem to separate us. Now, another principle that comes out of this passage is the wonderful truth that we do this by living under the reign of Christ. That is a very conscious sense 
of having him over us in all things. And we do that by recognizing that there's a, there's a difference here. Some things are given clearly by divine commandment. And there is no uncertainty about these things. No matter what I may think or decide, it is always wrong for me to steal. The divine law is clear about that. And I have no qualms. That's settled. But after the matter of the divine law, the commandments of God, there are things for which Scripture gives no evident standard and which I must make and decide the best I can under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Now, friend, you have the responsibility to do this, not just the privilege, but the duty. We read it here where he says in verse 5, let everyone be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, that is a command. Let everyone be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, you have to after having seen what the laws of God are and immediately committing yourself to the obeying of those, in matters which are indifferent and which are not spoken of directly in Scripture, you must come before God and be convinced in your own mind what it is you are doing. If someone says to you, now do this activity, it will never hurt you, but your own conscience tells you that that's a sinful thing for you to do. And if you do it, even though the friend says it'll never hurt you, there's nothing in the scripture against this activity. If you do it, you are sinning. One girl comes to her pastor and says, I think it's wrong for me to wear makeup. I just, I just have real qualms in my heart. My conscience bothers me. Is that a sin for me? If that girl is convinced in her heart that that is a sin, even though Scripture does not say so, if she is convinced and then goes ahead and does it, she is sinning. Whereas another girl with another conscience and having been fully convinced in her own mind otherwise applies the makeup, she is not sinning so that the same act can be for two different Christians, in one case a commission of sin, and another not, an act of righteousness. Let everyone be convinced fully in his own mind. That's the divine decree which calls me to settle on the basis of Scripture and conscience and the counsel of others what is the way for me. Now what the apostle is outlining here is, that is, he's taking for granted the fact that every Christian is committed to honoring the Lord in all his life. He's just taking that as basic. And that's surely true of every disciple of Christ here and everywhere. That if you're a disciple of Christ, that simply stands for the fact that you take your whole life to be given to the honoring of God. You see, there is nothing that a Christian does that is unreligious. Nothing. Every act he does is religious because whether he eats or drinks, he does all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Calvin said it was the responsibility of Christians 
to study obedience so carefully that they would not displease God in anything. You see, you can't be unreligious as a Christian in any action which you take. Therefore, here's a young person saying, may I do this particular activity? And the answer, if it's not clearly described in Scripture, the answer is, can you do it to honor the Lord? Should I refrain from this thing? Does your refraining honor the Lord? You see, the whole Christian life, living under the reign of Christ, means that every choice and decision and activity is tested by that great question, does it honor Him? Because, you see, as Christians, we're not our own. We have been bought with a great price. We don't belong to ourselves. We really have no right to choose simply for ourselves. We are possessed of Him. We are His property. He animates us. We are really dead and only come to life, life because He raised us. And therefore, everything we do and say goes back to the honoring of him. Are you doing that? Many of you are young persons. You're settling basic questions about the conduct of your Christian life, ethical and moral matters. You're setting the pattern of your life. And are you doing it selfishly, simply to please your own person, simply to please those around you? Or are you willing tonight to commit yourself to say, Whatever I do, in word or in deed, I will do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And you see, when Christians do this, then they are all under the reign of Christ. Some are going to be more scrupulous. Some are going to be more free. But they can tolerate these differences because they know that they are all aiming at the pleasing of the Lord, and they're all owned by Him, and they can embrace one another even in their differing perceptions of what His call and His will is for them. Now, the passage gives us one other principle on which to base living under the Lordship of Christ as the key to harmony with each other. And that is where to live in the light of the judgment day. It's something we don't do often, is it? Living in the light of judgment requires you to refrain from judging now. If your eyes are on the horizon of history where Christ will return and judge, it is utterly inappropriate for us to judge persons now. He will judge persons. And we have no right to do it. Judge not that ye be not judged, said our Lord Jesus. We judge actions on the basis, not of our prejudices or our whims, censoriously, but on the basis of the Word of God. We judge actions. But even in the judging of actions, may we be more severe with our own actions than we are with the actions of others. How easily to judge in them what is really wrong in ourselves. 
But living in the light of the judgment day means that there's this sense of the anticipation of the glory of God. For we read here that we must all stand before the judgment seat of God. He is the Lord of history, and he will march before him the great panorama of human events, and he will decide everything according to his own standards. He will have the last word. This is the great assize. Believers and unbelievers shall stand before him, the judge of all things. We do not need to wait until then to know what his decision about us is. We know it now. But then when we stand before him, it will be proclaimed that we have been cleansed by the blood of Christ and that we stand acquitted before God. It will be announced to the angels and to the world who we are in Christ. And judgment will be rendered to our deeds. That is, the verdict of God will be pronounced upon the quality of our new obedience. And then it shall be seen what are our works. Evil works will be shown. Our evil works will come out. They will be manifested. We don't often think of judgment. We're so preoccupied with the sweetness and the comfort of Christ's coming that we forget it's accompanied with judgment. But even when my evil deeds are revealed on the day of judgment, I will not lose joy. My joy will not be abated because even the manifestation of my evil deeds will result in the vindication of God's holiness and his glory. And I will be so tuned to having God glorified that I will want him to be glorified even at the manifestation of my own wickedness. Living in the light of the judgment day of God is awaiting his glory and refusing to judge men, to condemn them. In that day, each of us shall give account of himself before God. That sentence is emphasized in every word in the original text so that none may miss it. It is as if we each had a peculiar book that was personal to us, and we all came to the judgment with our own book and opened it. Each shall give account. Not only persons will be judged, but deeds will be judged. How did you use your time? That will be asked. One of the plagues of young people, I think, is the misuse and the waste of time. But you will account for your hours, not only when you're older, but now. What did you do with your time? The great matters of opportunity. What did you do with the chances I gave you? Did you use them? What did you do with your strength and your talent? How did you employ them? All this will be open before God. 
So you see, the Christian who is wise will always live in the environment of the coming judgment because he knows that he must give account to God for all that he has done. So that instead of spending his strength and time in the judgment of others, he will turn that judgment upon himself and scrutinize his works, his use of himself and his resources. Am I able to give account to God for what I am and what I've done? Oh, what a grand thing we have in Christian faith, that it can take so disparate a group as we are and blend us into a harmony with the key of Jesus Christ reigning over us. He is Lord, and as we look to his lordship, we live in love and acceptance and welcome in the home and in the church. A singing group came one day to our church, and I watched them as I always do, but this group was different. They had such love for one another. These 30 or 40 young people were so filled with affection and joy and support that I was led to say to the director, what's the secret? You must be tired on the road cramped quarters on the bus, setting up every night in a different church. How do you get along so beautifully? He said, there's only one secret. Every one of us is looking to the Lord Jesus, and in him we find each other. That's living under the Lordship, the key to harmony in your home and in our church. May it be so for us here. Let us pray. Blessed and gracious Lord, how wise and good of you to draw us together in the focal point of your own ownership and your own judgment. We ask for grace that in a whole new way we may welcome one another and we may live together under the Lordship of Christ in light of the coming judgment when we must each give account of ourselves to God. We ask this, Lord, praying earnestly and fervently that our own harmony may be strengthened and beautified as Christ is more and more exalted over us. Bless every home, Lord, that the harmony of Christ may prevail there as each parent and child looks to the Lordship of Jesus, refusing to judge but truly welcoming and preparing his own peculiar book for the judgment day. In Jesus' name we ask.